I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It seems like an aeon ago, another age that the Taliban routed the US military and its NATO allies, driving them out of town, packing their tents and nothing much more, and fleeing from a country they had occupied for 20 whole years. The longest war since the Hundred Years' War centuries before. They don't want to talk about it anymore. It is astounding that after an expenditure of more than $3 trillion, the expenditure of an ocean of blood, our blood and Afghan blood, after the total destruction of a Stone Age country and 20 years of so-called nation building, and they don't want to talk about it. If you don't believe me, go looking for the retrospectives. Go looking for the lessons learned because not 12 months later we are deeply sunk in another war this time in the mud of the ukraine as opposed to the sand of afghanistan trump had many faults and i'll come to him in a minute but he was right when he was campaigning at least in 2060 that the united states entrapment of itself in the never-ending wars in the sands of the deserts of Arabia and of Afghanistan was an historic mistake. And that is obvious, will be crystal clear to all historians. But it's not crystal clear to today's scribes who write the first draft of that history. They just don't write about it at all. It is astounding that so many, never mind Afghans, of our own young men and women who lost their lives there, who lost their limbs there, who were emotionally and psychologically scarred forever there, that the war almost might never have happened so far as the states that spent the trillions are concerned. Doesn't it worry you that the same politicians cheered on by the same journalists and broadcasters have taken you into another war when the last one turned out, ended so disastrously. Doesn't that worry you at all? Have you obeyed the injunction to forget that it ever happened? I take no schadenfreude from this. I would never want to live under the Taliban. Although it does bring some quiet satisfaction that the predictions that one made back then have turned out so dazzlingly accurately true. When Jack Straw in the spring of 2002 told the House of Commons 
that there was every possibility that our soldiers would be home for Christmas. He really did say that, scholar of the First World War, obviously. I rose in the House of Commons and said, your soldiers will not be back from Afghanistan 10 Christmases hence. It turned out to be 20 Christmases hence. Jack invited the House of Commons to laugh at me. And how they laughed. They laughed and laughed, but they're not laughing now. Certainly the families of those who lost their life and limbs there are not laughing. The taxpayers who spent the trillions are not laughing now. And least of all, the Afghan people are not laughing now. I'll go back further. On the eve of the triumph of the fathers of the Taliban, in the 1980s, entering the gates of Kabul, I told Margaret Thatcher, you have opened the gates to the barbarians and a long dark night will now descend upon the people of Afghanistan. I said a lot of true words in Parliament over nearly 30 years, but none came as vividly true as that. A long dark night lasting now for more than 40 years. 20 of those years under British and American and other NATO occupation. The people of Afghanistan have bled and those who sent those British, American, Australian and other NATO forces bled not just the Afghans but bled their own people too and not just their life's blood, but their psychological blood. The cost of the Afghan 20 years cannot properly be calibrated only in money or deaths. It must be calibrated in other ways too. And one of the most obvious is that the politicians and commentators who cheered it on must be utterly discredited and precluded from leading us into any more such confrontations. And yet it's left to the 99 and a half year old Henry Kissinger, the oldest man on the planet, the man with more blood on his hands than any man alive on the planet. It's left to Henry Kissinger to talk sense, who said this week, that reckless American foreign policy making has taken us to the edge of war with Russia and China with absolutely no idea why, where it's to lead to, and how we can get out of it. Kissinger was described in the headline atop the article about his recent interview as an American diplomat. That's like calling Cristiano Ronaldo a footballer. Kissinger is the American diplomat. Kissinger designed American foreign policy. And now he says that Blinken swaggering around the world, threatening and bullying people to increasingly lesser effect. Even Rwanda is telling the United States to go and get stuffed. South Africa. Go and get stuff. Don't lecture Africa on what they should do and with whom they should do it. Kissinger says that Blinken's foreign policy 
and by extension Biden's foreign policy has led us and I quote to the edge of war with Russia and with China. Is 99 and a half year old Henry Kissinger the last sentient being in Washington? Is there nobody else? Even those who work the television circuits, the sofa TV, the journalistic towers of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Is there nobody left with the sanity or maybe it's the courage to speak out against this brigandage, this swaggering around like drunken pirates that the Biden administration is currently on. Is there nobody is what I ask myself. Let me turn to Donald J. Trump. Wearyingly, I continue to have to make this point. Because I'm against Joe Biden doesn't mean I'm with Donald Trump. But I will tell you this, that the raid on Donald Trump's house and the footage I have seen, don't tell my wife, of the FBI agents fingering Melania Trump's underwear on camera in the name of the law is a very significant Rubicon that the Biden administration has passed. But it isn't the final Rubicon and not the biggest. But I know the Rubicon to which they are headed and in which this will be seen as the first shot in something that may destroy the United States of America. The idea that you should trust the FBI as so many lunatic parrots on the so-called left and progressive and democratic side of American politics is so perfectly absurd I can't believe I'm having to deal with it. Equally, the outrage on the right of American politics about the conduct of the FBI contrasts sharply with the fanboy cheering by such people of every historic act of the FBI from J. Edgar Hoover onwards. What they did to Trump is exactly what they did to the American Black Panther movement to communists and socialists and labor organizers, all in the name of justice and freedom. The raid, reckless raid, on a former president of the republic based on documents, documents he's had for one and a half years, documents part of which he had already returned other parts of which he was negotiating with them about. Documents which when he took them, he had the power instantly to declassify them and thus make otios all of the verbiage that is spewing out of American talk shows this very day. idea that if Trump had dangerous documents in his house, that the FBI would have waited a year and a half to recover them. It's so ridiculous, it's an insult to your intelligence, but so many intelligent people pretend at least to have fallen for it. They're saying that Trump 
committed treason. Well, all American presidents have committed treason against the interests of their own people. That's true. But Trump committed less treason than the predecessors, some of whom continue to be players, active players, in United States politics today, I refer to Hillary Clinton, who deleted 33 million documents that she had stored on her own personal hard drive entirely illegally. The Hillary Clinton who paid for and conceptualized the entire Russiagate hoax which cost the American taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars and two and a half years at least of vital, valuable, governmental time in Washington. Neither of those were ever raided by the FBI. Jeffrey Epstein's clients were never raided by the FBI, but guess what? The judge that signed the warrant for the first ever raid on the home of an American president was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. Now, as Trump's son, doesn't mean it's not true because it was Trump's son that pointed it out today. Shouldn't there be a bit more discussion about how Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer became a federal judge? A man involved in the initial prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein who then resigned from the bench and became Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer the next day. Out of all the tens of thousands of judges in America, the only one they could find to sign a search warrant for Trump's residence was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer, who only two months before had recused himself from a Trump legal case against Hillary Clinton on the grounds that he could not be impartial in it. But he could sign a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, and he did, and the feds, 30 armed federal officers, unannounced, arriving at the house of the former president, fingering the lingerie of Melania on camera, and taking away boxes of paper. Donald Trump should have just left all his documents in a laptop repair shop in Manhattan. He'd have got away with it scot-free, although the laptop repairman wouldn't have got away with it quite so freely. Because as that laptop repairman told us again this week, the FBI are never done threatening him to keep stum about what he found on Hunter Biden's laptop. But this is not just a story about hypocrisy. If it was, I'd just be amused by it. It's the first shot in the following chain of events. It is absolutely the intention of the Biden administration to, one way or another, preclude any possibility of Donald Trump coming back as President of the United States. If you can't beat him, jail him. If you can't jail him, then dispense with him some other way. If I was Donald Trump, I wouldn't be going anywhere in an open-top vehicle because I'm talking about termination with extreme prejudice. They cannot beat Trump. Arguably, they didn't even beat him last time. 
but they will not beat him next time, not after the disastrous period in office of the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration. So they're going to have to jail him, and that means they're going to charge him before November in the hope of making a dent in the Republican surge that runs the risk of not just taking control of the Congress in the United States in November, just weeks from now, but opening up the possibility of the impeachment of Joe Biden and the imprisonment of Hunter Biden and the others involved in the political and financial corruption of Ukraine by the whole of the Obama administration and the whole of the Biden administration now. And if they stop Donald Trump from running, they will make his movement a thousand times more powerful. And Trump supporters have got most of the guns. And the danger of them beginning to use them and of this degenerating into a new civil conflict, maybe even civil war in America, is a clear and present danger. And that makes it a danger to the world. I'm myself of American descent in part. My great-grandmother was the only American in the entire 19th century that emigrated from New York to Dundee in Scotland. She probably got on the wrong boat, but that's what she did. I have no wish to see the great American people suffer, none at all. But I have even less wish to see the world destabilized by a warring, factionalized, armed, dysfunctional, degenerate United States of America with a thermonuclear arsenal of thousands of missiles that can bring about the end of the world forever with the mere touch of a button. So the stakes on this are high. They're high in the Taiwan Straits, where the American fleet is currently steaming just off the shores of China. They're high still in the Ukraine, as Zelensky vows to fire on a nuclear power plant. And the entire Western media has their mouth zipped shut about it. It's been running, actually, on the uh, community poll on YouTube since uh, 2.30. It's asking if, uh, if uh, the FBI raid uh, on uh, Donald Trump's uh, residence uh, will, uh, in the end, send him to jail. Uh, 3,400 people voted uh, this afternoon on the community poll. Yes, 14%. No, 86%. Maybe a triumph of hope over expectation there. On YouTube, uh, it's yes, 14%, no, 86%. On Telegram, yes, 15%, no, 85%. You can vote to the end of the show on that poll. The one and only Jackson Hinkle, the smartest in America, is on the line now. U.S. broadcaster, podcaster, commentator extraordinary. Jackson, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. It's been too long. Um, what do you make of the Rubicon that was crossed 
uh, in Florida this very week. Well, thanks for having me on the show again. And what happened at Trump's private residence in Mar-a-Lago was absolutely frightening. And what's been even more frightening is the fact that you have so many people who consider themselves to be on the progressive left in the United States who are coming out and defending the weaponization of the FBI against the former president, uh, something that's never been done. The weaponization of the Espionage Act against the former president, you know, while they're similarly and simultaneously complaining about the weaponization, rightfully so, of the uh, Espionage Act against Julian Assange. I mean, that should be condemned. But why is it okay when they use it against Donald Trump, you know? Uh, why didn't they ask for these documents? Why didn't they subpoena Donald Trump for these documents? They're going in to, their, to his private residence, going through, you know, Melania's, M Melania Trump's uh, clothes and stuff like that. You were talking about that earlier. It's really incredible. And first they were talking about, you know, they had to go get these documents because of a illegal declassification. And then the story turned into, well, we have to go to Tr Trump's private residence because of nuclear codes. And then the story turned into, well, we had to go in there because, you know, the documents pertaining to the Iran deal. Now, sources are saying that they were uh, seeking information relating to the United States Air Force training Ukrainians on American drones. So what's the real story here? It seems like no one really knows why they went in there. Uh, no one really understands why they had to do this. Uh, I think the underlying truth of it all is they're trying to pin something on Trump relating to January 6th and make it so, you know, if he does run for president in 2024, he's going to have to pull a Eugene Debs and run from prison, which there is precedent for in the United States. But I, I think if the deep state wants to keep Donald Trump out of office, uh, for what reason? I don't know. Apparently, he poses some sort of a threat to the deep state. I don't think he poses a massive threat to the deep state. But I think they're going to end up turning him into a martyr and, you know, there's going to be an even larger amount of public support for Donald Trump and, you know, what he stands for, his, his character, uh, than if they had not done this. So it's really incredible to watch. Let's deal with the issue you uh, raised on passant there, that uh, what is it that is so frightening about Donald Trump? Certainly his words, his rhetoric. Uh, was sometimes fierce, but his actions uh, did not match up to his words. He didn't drain the swamp. As a matter of fact, he appointed some of the worst bottom dwellers of the swamp to his inner circle, his cabinet. He surrounded himself with swamp dwellers. So what are they worried about? It's a good question. You know, I've talked about this extensively with Colonel Douglas McGregor on my show. And Colonel Douglas McGregor was Trump's uh, senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. And from what I understand in uh, McGregor's personal dealings and uh, his experience with Donald Trump, he basically has put it as such that Donald Trump was not a good butcher. And the first time he said that, I was thinking to myself, what do you mean he wasn't a good butcher? Well, if you're going to be a good president, you have to be willing to be a good butcher and get rid of the people that surround you that are part of that swamp and are either trying to bring you down or lie to you. You know, you think about during the Kennedy administration, it's, of course, the Dulles brothers. And we saw who won that battle uh, in Donald Trump's case. You're right. He did appoint a lot of these swamp deep state figures to his administration. He thought that he could trust anyone who had, you know, a certain amount of stars on their chest. And if they were a highly respected military official, I think he learned, you know, far too late that that wasn't the case. 
Uh, Donald Trump was tricked when it came to Syria. He was, uh, you know, lied to when it came to Iran. I mean, you had you had Donald Trump saying things like we had to pull out of the Iran deal because the Iranians were working with, you know, Sunni fundamentalists. I, the guy was fed so much false information. It's incredible. And he really didn't think to check any of this. Uh, and, and then when he did you know, learn from his associates and from the people that were around him that maybe had some uh, good points to make about all this stuff, about what the deep state was doing. What did he do? Well, he went idly by and he tried to work with these deep state figures. He didn't get rid of them. He didn't get rid of John Bolton quick enough. He didn't get rid of Mike Pompeo. Uh, he didn't get rid of the people that were doing the most damage around him. Okay, And in many cases, he escalated tensions with our adversaries, right? He said that he was a good businessman, wanted to have good relations, and sure, he didn't start a war with Ukraine. Sure, he didn't almost start a war with China, but there was a lot of damage that he did do. So, you know, I, I, I have to look at the situation now as these figures are trying to prevent him from running for office again. And I think, to be quite honest, uh, though Donald Trump doesn't pose a, you know, an existential threat to the deep state, there is at least somewhat of a threat that he poses when you compare him to figures like Joe Biden, who go along with everything that his handlers say. Now, what uh, are the likely moves uh, here in, in your view? You made the point that Debs ran for president from prison, but of course he didn't succeed, alas, alas. Uh, I don't think that uh, Trump will be in prison by 2024, though he may be on his way to prison, uh, he may well be embroiled in years of legal troubles uh, in the hope of exhausting him, making him cry uncle. Uh, he's already facing in the New York district and in other places, Ohio, I think, uh, the, the possibility of criminal uh, charges. Might Trump appoint a surrogate and, uh, in parenthesis, I had thought that DeSantis might be his surrogate, but DeSantis on the uh, sofa yesterday on Fox News appeared to turn decisively against Trump with regard to this raid. It was very interesting to see that. You know, DeSantis has previously said that he would not run for president if Donald Trump was already running and it announced his candidacy. So. We'll see if that changes. He said this. I don't know if he is going to stand by it when he sees his poll numbers as high as they are right now. But the problem with DeSantis is that it's the big elephant in the room. No one knows what this man's foreign policy is. He's surrounded by a bunch of people who are, you know, foreign policy hawks. They're neoconservatives. They're Zionists. And I would imagine that he, given how quiet he is about the foreign policy crises that are currently unfolding, is probably not too dissimilar to the people that he surrounds himself with. Uh, Donald Trump, you talk about a surrogate. Well, of course, there's Donald Trump Jr. I mean, he's a very popular figure in the United States. Uh, many people don't really know that much about Donald Trump Jr. They think he's just kind of a stuck-up kid of a former president, which is probably somewhat true. But if you actually listen to him talk, he, he's, uh, you know, he, he's got better foreign policy ideas than his father. I think he's more ideologically inclined than his father is when it comes to these sorts of issues. 
it'd be interesting to see, you know, where he stands uh, in, a, in a presidential debate amongst all these other Republican officials if Donald Trump himself can't run. Uh, I'd probably have many disagreements with Donald Trump Jr., but if you're talking about doing the least amount of damage and the person who's going to try to restore some semblance of detente with the rest of the world, I think that uh, he wouldn't be a bad pick. He wouldn't be the worst pick within the Republican Party. Now, uh, the, the situation's, of course, fraught with perils, Jackson. Uh, if we ever see Donald Trump in handcuffs, doing the perp walk, appearing in court on criminal charges, the already volatile and heavily armed situation in the United States could spiral uncontrollably, couldn't it? A hundred percent. You know, when the FBI launched this raid on Donald Trump's personal residence, what was trending on Twitter? It was the phrase civil war. And now you're hearing talks about how, you know, Twitter might start censoring the phrase civil war and those who use it. But the thing I want to point out here is that most Americans don't want a civil war. They feel like a civil war is being waged upon us. You know, what is America? What, what binds us together? It's a very diverse country. I love that. It makes uh, for a very interesting place to live. But we're supposed to stand for a common set of freedoms and values. Uh, the same deep state that is going after Donald Trump right now, uh, like it or not, is the same exact group of people that's trying to tell us that freedom of speech is bad and we should be cheerleading censorship. They're the same exact group of people that are saying, you know, the, the Second Amendment is, you know, innately inhuman. Uh, it's really incredible to bear witness to the unraveling of the fabric of this country. And yeah, I would have to say that if we see Donald Trump in handcuffs, if we see him going into prison, I don't even want to think about what's going to happen in this country because that it would be unprecedented. People would be rightfully outraged and rightfully concerned about this. You know, in any sort of just democratic society, you're supposed to be upholding the law fairly and firmly. And we know that's not the case in the United States. You don't have to search too hard to find many examples of the law being weaponized and our judicial system being weaponized against you know, historically, many socialists, many communists. Now, today, we're seeing it being weaponized against the populist right. Uh, the January 6 hearings, the Russiagate scam, and now this. Uh, if, you know, if recent history is any indicator, I don't see this problem solving itself, and I see it actually getting much, much worse in due time. And the social media giants are probably going to provide cover for those who are leading the charge to lock up in prison and uh, vilify the populist movement, either left or right, in the United States. Now, this may be of interest only to thee and me and uh, Cognoscenti, but I am genuinely perplexed. This is the same FBI that hounded and spied upon and maybe even killed uh, Paul Robeson, uh, the giants like Martin Luther King, like the nascent uh, Black Panther movement, Black Power movement in the United States that maybe killed JFK, that maybe killed uh, RFK, that certainly have spied, burgled and bugged their way through what we might call the left in America for 
I don't know, half a century, three quarters of a century, and yet it now has a chorus of cheerleaders from people who would only a few years ago have been treating the FBI uh, like, like pariahs. They would not have ever come out as cheerleaders of the feds. How do you account for that? What's the psychology behind all that, Jackson? The psychology behind it is called Trump derangement syndrome or blue MAGA. Some people refer to it as Aaron Maté calls it blue MAGA. You know, it, it's it's just so incredible to to see what's happening right now. You have like leading, quote unquote, progressives uh, like, for example, Nina Turner, former care campaign co-chair of Bernie Sanders's presidential campaign, who's coming out now. And again, they're celebrating the fact that the FBI and the Espionage Act are being weaponized to go against a dissident of the security state, of the intelligence community. And someone that doesn't even pose, I, I think, too much of a threat to them, but they're still going after Donald Trump, you know? Uh, and you're 100% correct to point out that, yes, many of these exact people that are applauding this recognize that historically the FBI, the CIA, all these intelligence groups, right, uh, they have gone after successfully the, the names that you've just listed. And they can point that out. They can understand that. But the fact now that they're going after Donald Trump, uh, they're acting as, as hypocrites. They're saying that conservatives are completely, uh, you know, they're, they're calling conservative hypocrites for being mad at the fact that they're going after Donald Trump right now. That's not how you should act. You should be celebrating and welcoming the fact that you have conservatives who maybe previously didn't understand that the security state was the beast that it is. And they're now coming around to this idea that, yes, we should defund or abolish the FBI. Yes, we should drain the DOJ. Yes, we should be really worried about the CIA and get rid of them, too. You know, it's it's incredible that so many um, so many so-called leftists, they describe themselves as leftists. I don't think they're leftists are outraged about this. No, if you are cheerleading the fact that the FBI is doing this right now, if you if you are supportive of this, if you can't welcome conservatives who are coming around to this idea that you've held for years already, well, you, you never really supported the idea of abolishing the FBI or going after the security state. You, you supported being a rank partisan and a Democratic Party loyalist, and that's all you're ever going to be. So it's very disappointing to see that because we have an opportunity here in the United States, like no other, to unite left and right, come together and actually achieve something for one, something very substantive. Yet partisan politics is, again, wedging uh, its way into this issue and the solution to what could be something really beautiful and incredible for this country. Couldn't have put it better myself. Jackson Hinkle, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. He's a smart guy. Follow him on Twitter and watch his uh, program. Next Sunday, we're back to the three-hour mother of all talk shows. So put that in your diary, 7 p.m. UK time next Sunday for three hours until 10 p.m. And even better news than that, on October the 12th, the midweek mother of all talk shows will be relaunched. 
You'll remember it was going great guns, but we had to close it down for financial reasons. We had to stop our podcast for the same financial reasons. We have now relaunched the podcast and we're going to, God willing, relaunch the midweek mother of all talk shows on Wednesday, the 12th of October. Again, a three hour show, all singing, all dancing, taking the place of uh, the family business that is the Galloway show where last week just me and Gayatri produced a 90-minute talk show with just one camera and with my duvet taken off the bed in order to provide sound deadening function. Now, uh, of course, that's gone very well. More than 800,000 people are watching the uh, Galloway show on Wednesday nights and we hope to keep that audience if we can get a sponsor so much the better but until we can get a sponsor and if you're out there Jack Ma or anyone else and you would like to reach for three hours on a Wednesday night hundreds of thousands of people the best part of a million people with your brand your name your services then sponsor us but in the absence of a sponsor we need your support for the fighting fund to relaunch the midweek moats and the best way to do that right now if you're watching on youtube is through the super chat mechanism you're on youtube go now to super chat and make a donation however small and in whatever denomination dino pantalaukas gives as he does every week $9.99. My weekly contribution, he says, to the Fighting Fund. Solidarity from New York. God bless you, Dino. Albert Sontag gives 40 US dollars and says, since the days of the vile Iraq invasion, you have been the loudest, clearest, and most intelligent voice for justice in the world. Many thanks for your courage and effort. Thank you, Albert. I'm, I'm touched by that and glad that my wife and children have just read it thank you sailing prepper gives five american dollars and asks is it true that a person under investigation cannot run for president well they could make it true that seems to me self-evident mesha daffy gives 20 american dollars glad to catch this one live i've missed the last couple so here's my contribution to catch up thanks as always george thank you for that handsome donation Roger Asai gives 100 American dollars. My share for a year adjusted for fees and inflation before my US dollar becomes totally worthless. Looking forward to the resumption of Wednesday shows on my sister's birthday in October. Roger, happy birthday to her in advance and many thanks to you. Sarah Jackman gives 101 US dollars and asks, Will one of you please interview Diane Saar and Jackson Hinkle? Well, we just have interviewed Jackson. Sarah, I can't thank you enough for that handsome, generous donation. Zook Zookski, as always, gives two British pounds. Good evening, GG family and chat. And R Sultani, 700, gives £1.79. Otto Calvo gives 50 Norwegian crowns. Teresa Kelly, my good friend in the United States, gives 10 American dollars. Jesus Martinez gives 5 American dollars. T-Mac, 3 American dollars. 
Abing, 71, 99 cents. John Fitzy, one pounds. Maria Teresa Hughes, one pound 49. Jackson Kane, one pound. And now it's that wily old fox of Fleet Street, Martin R.J., who is continuing to tell his truths on Patreon these days. I'm a follower of his. So should you be, Martin. Thanks for joining us. Um, you've been around, like me, around the block for a long time. And you know when things are vogue in the media and when they're not and why they're not. So why is the first anniversary of the humiliating retreat from Kabul and the return to power of the Taliban so roundly ignored in the mainstream media today? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Afghanistan is um, one of those... Um, rather ugly um, blots on the landscape of uh, the West's history in uh, intervention um, in that particular part of Asia. I, I, I've always said that uh, Afghanistan was, uh, was a failed project from the beginning, but um, I've worked there, I've been there, I've spent time there with American soldiers, Germans, um, Italians, and um, my feelings more recently since we pulled out of Afghanistan is that I think there was a different agenda completely in Afghanistan for a very long time, one of um, international corruption involving money. I think Afghanistan was a location for dirty money. It's very, very difficult to these days, a journalist of my age, to talk to younger editors in the newsroom of British, British newspapers and tell them that the British intelligence services actually pays terrorists around the world to do its dirty work. No one believes you when you say that, even though we know that's a fact. I know it's a fact from working in Lebanon and covering Syria. Um, and also that, that governments like Britain and America have locations around the world where they need to keep dirty money. And uh, if you, you're old enough, George, to remember the 80s and Ronald Reagan, if you can remember um, the mess that Reagan got himself into uh, with uh, buying illegal, sorry, selling illegal weapons to Iran. Uh, pocketing $30 million and then not knowing what to do with that money because it, it was dirty money. He diverted it to the, to, his, uh, to, the, to the Contras in Nicaragua who were on a blacklist for financing by Congress. And he used that pretext, that entire area of uh, American hostages in Beirut, which was part of the whole Iran deal, um, and uh, tried to really use, use the, the sensitivity and the security and the and how um, dangerous the whole situation was to justify a shroud of secrecy over this money. And I think uh, 
I don't think it's too far-fetched to, to wonder, is the same thing going on in, in, in Afghanistan? Is the same thing, was it going on in Afghanistan? Is the same thing going on today in Ukraine? I wonder where, whether um, in Ukraine in particular, you know, this is the new location for dirty money, um, for money laundering, for, uh, for dispatching on from Ukraine uh, arms to other um, groups around the world, which the Americans... Um, are sympathetic to. So for me, Afghanistan was was a real disgrace and a real blot on the landscape, I think, for the geopolitics, um, for the Western hegemony in, in, in general. But, um, you know, I think it's only coming through now, the truth, that what really happened there wasn't really a war which was supposed to be won. It was more a location where corrupt people, particularly in the Karzai government, could work with the West to hide money and keep dirty money and use the location to um, uh, for money laundering. And I think it's, I'm going to be called a conspiracy theorist for saying this, I know, but I think Ukraine has taken that role now. Very dark uh, indeed, Martin, but with, uh, as uh, Richard Ingrams used to say, the ring of truth. Uh, the uh, recent revelation that one-third of the military expenditure of the U.S. in Afghanistan went to companies that can no longer be found on the Internet uh, gives, uh, bolsters the essential point that you were making. It's almost yeah, well, that impossible was a, that was... to... Uh, go on. No, it was, the, it was an article that I penned myself about four weeks ago for the Daily Mail. I did a, a, a somewhat minor investigation into where these arms were going. And more importantly, could the Western governments, could Britain and America have any way of tracking them whatsoever? And it wasn't, I can hardly call myself, uh, call the, the, the article a great feat of journalism. Um, it, it wasn't really that difficult to discover that there was no tracking whatsoever in place for these weapons, and there isn't. But there is a link between um, Syria and Ukraine. It's not that difficult to find um, certain extremist groups in Idlib, which are pro-Western, who are fighting Assad and Russian troops who are actually buying these weapons from the Ukrainian military at knockdown prices. And some of these individuals are actually working in Ukraine as well for weeks and months at a, at a time. So that was something I unveiled a few weeks ago. I noticed that CBS just a couple of weeks ago followed up with a similar type article um, and revealed that only 30% were actually reaching the target. That might be exaggerated a bit. I've noticed that they retracted it, but I, I would say that if you had to take a guess, I would say certainly something like about half of these arms aren't getting to where they're getting. And, you know, we're witnessing the West is very slowly but significantly turning on Zelensky. It's not a very quick thing. It's not a, it's not a huge tipping moment, but it is, it is a gradual turn. You know, there is now a, a new nefarious campaign from a lot of Western media to undermine Zelensky and start to introduce into the mainstream media um, palette the subject of corruption. This has just popped up just in the last few weeks and it's starting more and more, I've noticed. So the Canadians reckon only 30% of those arms are getting in. I think it would take another few weeks probably before other journalists start to ask the more blatant questions. Well, if only 30% or 50% is getting to the Ukrainian military, then where is the rest going? And I've speculated in my recent uh, opinion pieces, which you can read on Patreon, you know, I've, I've, I've laid out five scenarios of 
where these arms could be going and, and who's, who's actually managing that uh, trafficking. And uh, none of those scenarios um, look very good. Um, you know, it, we have to remember that Ukraine is one of the most corrupt places in the world. It's certainly the most corrupt country in Europe. And in my experience of working in war zones, corruption doesn't go away when the wars start. It, in quite the opposite. It actually intensifies tenfold because all the militias and all the politicians need more money to pay off their people, where wages in the past, you know, made up a great deal of those payments. So, you know, we need now to, we need a new question, a new debate now with media. If, if they are going to turn their back on Zelensky, and there are a number of reasons why they, they, they will probably want to do that um, in the coming months, you know, we need to now find out, well, where are these arms going? Um, isn't it funny that I can order a $5 phone cover for the back of my mobile phone from China and, you know, the Chinese post office can more or less track it right to my front door, but we can't track in Britain uh, Starstreak uh, missiles, which we're sending to Ukraine or armored personnel vehicles, 120 went there um, a couple of months ago. No British journalist I know or editor I've talked to can tell me whether they're there, where they are, did they arrive, <laughs> you know. So um, there's a lot of questions now really about um, whether these weapons are, uh, uh, where are they going? You know, that's what we really need to know. Well, you haven't lost the art of the zinger, Martin. That uh, phone cover analogy will uh, travel far, I can assure you. Uh, you'd mentioned Ronald Reagan earlier. Um, the uh, aircraft carrier bearing his name will not now be sailing through the Straits of Taiwan, presumably for fear uh, that it would go the way of the Amethyst in 1949. Uh, but the rest of the battle group appears intent on doing so. And another group of American congressmen and women has just arrived this day in Taiwan, hot on the uh, kitten heels of Nancy Pelosi. Have they begun to lose interest in the confrontation with Russia and pivot now towards a confrontation with China? It's difficult to say in, in a nutshell. What I think we can certainly say is the West is definitely losing in Ukraine. Um, you can track it. You can spot it. No matter how much you might not like to accept it, you know, no matter how much you might support uh, Zelensky and everything that he, that he says, you, know, you can actually look every day on the Internet. You can actually see the line moving. So the Russians are advancing. There's no question of that. Um, it's really the big question now is how does it end? Um, and I think, uh, I think the Biden administration is really getting tired of it. I mean, you know, we talked about articles before just a couple of weeks ago. Thomas Friedman, the award-winning journalist, who's a bit of a legend in the Middle East, um, wrote a piece for The Washington Post. And he talked about corruption for the first time in the um, Zelensky administration. I think this was a signal. I think this was a way of signaling to other journalists that this is the new subject now because Biden is basically getting tired of working with Zelensky. I think the relationship has, has reached a point where it's fraying. And um, the Americans and the British need a way out. And I'm wondering whether creating a new crisis on the other side of the world um, with, a, with another superpower may be a, a brilliant way of diverting all that media attention um, and avoiding all those difficult questions and quickly engaging mainstream media in a new crisis. I don't think we're going to war with China. I think people who say that are really talking out their asses. I think that's exaggerating it. What they want, though, what I think the Biden administration would, would like is a, is a certain uh, tension, certain crisis. You know, it's, not, it's only going to be a question of time before those old cliches 
those old journalistic cliches of China crisis. You're going to see those in the headlines in the next couple of weeks. You know, um, so the China crisis is going to be the story, which hopefully the Biden administration thinks they will be able to sail through the midterms with and maybe at a pull out of Ukraine somehow or or at least reduce some of the military spending and pull back from Ukraine and see perhaps, I guess, my assumption, you know, I'm, you can call me a conspiracy theorist, but my assumption is I think the plan B um, of letting Ukraine fall into the abyss so that Russia is forced to take over the whole country, a monumental task, even for Russia, you know, um, to, to the, the Western thinking is, could we actually uh, create a new Afghanistan for Russia? You know, Ukraine is enormous. It would take hundreds of thousands, possibly even half a million soldiers, even to run it, even to run administrations, even to run, um, you know, traffic lights and, and basic, uh, basic public, public offices. And I'm wondering whether that's the plan which Biden is kicking around now, is can we move to China, create a new crisis, try and divert journalists away from asking the really tougher questions, like why do we have $5 gasoline prices? Why is food going up every single week in our supermarkets? You know, why are we, our economies imploding and they are imploding. There's no question of it. And at quite an alarming rate. You know, this is really what people are going to be start asking, particularly in the winter time. When winter bites in the UK, for example, and people really start to suffer, you know, the level of political opprobrium against our leaders is going to reach fever pitch. So I think this is the, the master plan now is how do we create a massive diversion? Well, China's pretty perfect, isn't it? And, you know, they're probably waiting for Liz Truss to get elected in the UK, who is, you know, a war dog who really believes that, Britain can punch above its weight and really give the Chinese a, a hard time, which is completely preposterous, outdated, anachronistic nonsense. I mean, you know, Britain, we only have, what is it, 80,000 soldiers or something? I mean, how do you take on China? You know, it's, just, it's completely nonsense. And of course, China Park, is... Martin. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and China, you know, what's the problem with China? The problem is, is that the West is finding it very, very hard to accept that um, we are no longer living in a, in a unipolar um, situation where America calls all the, all the shots. It, we've shifted. We've shifted for a long time now. And the world has become multipolar, and it's accelerating in that it's set up, in that, in that India, Russia, and China are becoming much, much more powerful, geopolitically and economically, and are starting to actually really develop as, as a world superpower themselves, who can actually tell America where to get off. Get off. And then you have the global south, which isn't um, towing the line of what most of its British and French um, former colonial masters in London and Paris would like them to do. They've said, no, bugger off. We're not getting involved in this war. Um, we're we're going to stay non-aligned because we learned the lessons the first time around. A lot of those countries are already shifting to Russia. You know, um, look what happened in Mali last week. You know, the French government, French troops pulled out. Russian troops flew in with new aircraft, which Putin gave the new government. You know, Burkina Faso is looking very, very closely every day at the events in Mali. And more and more countries in Africa are looking to Russia and in particular China as the new superpowers, the new, the new big brothers that they want to work with. Because only Russia and China, um, and in particular Russia, when we talk about geomilitary geo power, you know, only, only Russia offers that second layer of security, which we used to offer our former colonies in Africa a long time ago, which we've long since stopped doing, you know. So the world is changing and we're not really coping with it at all. And I think the answer is delusional, not at all. Well, um, stunned, like China. 
Now, right next door to you, you're in Morocco, in Algeria this week. Who was putting out the, the fires, the wildfires? It was Russian aircraft that was dousing the flames. Uh, Martin, I can't thank you enough for that brilliant uh, tour of the horizon. How do people get that kind of wisdom from you uh, on Patreon? They can just um, Google my name and Patreon. They'll come to me straight away. Or they can check out my Twitter, which is Martin R-J-E-Y. You're a star. Thank you very much indeed, Martin R-J. A quick break and then on with your phone calls. Let's go to Darren in Leeds on NATO. Go ahead, Darren. Hi there, Hi there George. I'm just quite worried about uh, NATO in winters. I've got some relatives in the Baltics, in Estonia. And when I was over there, there's a lot of um, very much groupthink. I think in the media over there, it's very much one-sided. Um, they seem to sort of cover the Russians as if it's still the dark period of what they call the Soviet Union. And they seem to think that all Russians are, how to say, they think they're all going to sort devils, of be evil. Devils, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I think, unfortunately, they're not realising their own leaders are sort of hanging their own countries by the noose in the winter. Misleaders. Um, I think the current leadership there, they're so hell-bent on NATO, it seems that they want to push the Europeans, even the Americans, further to sort of cause some sort of conflict or escalate it in the Baltics. I mean, do you think maybe after the seat filling in Ukraine, do you think something might open further up in the north? I don't think so, but there's always the possibility these uh, Baltic states, uh, which are uh, fleas on uh, an elephant's back, uh, are undoubtedly being agitated to bite uh, by people who will never come and fight uh, on their streets to defend them. Be sure uh, about that. If anyone thinks that, that uh, British soldiers are going to die in Vilnius, they've got another thing coming. Uh, but the Baltics are being used as a, as a cat's paw, as a spear in the back of Russia, and it could, of course, as anything could, cascade out of control. But I think the moment of maximum danger has passed. I agree with Martin J that NATO now wants out, having stared into the economic abyss and the military shortcomings of their weaponry compared to Russia, and now wants out. And I think the China crisis is the diversion, like Martin said, that has been picked to provide cover uh, for that. So I wouldn't panic, uh, at least not at this stage. Darren. Esther is in Ayrshire on Donald Trump. Go ahead, Esther. Good evening, George. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. Last time I spoke to you, I thought, wow, it's a great... Yeah, last time I spoke to you, I thought, wow, what a great day for America with the whole um, abortion thing because, you know, my mum chose to give me up for adoption instead of abortion, and I really appreciate that. And now I feel like I'm saying what a... Now I feel like I'm saying the exact opposite. I can't, I just, I just, I just can't believe, well, do you know what, I'm actually not surprised, really, but I'm shocked, and I actually think the best thing, because I think it's almost like they're trying to goad Trump supporters for some sort of action, and I think, do you know what, take your feet in November, and make sure that Republicans get the House and the Senate, and do it that way, because, 
he's playing it in the hands otherwise. But I do, you know, I've never been a massive Trump supporter. Yeah, of course. Uh, I even am rooting for him. On oh, this, I'm rooting for him. Well, uh, th there is, of course, an element of provocation. They would quite like isolated lunatics and halfwits to try and bomb FBI officers and so on. That would strengthen, buttress their uh, narrative. It's very important that people don't fall into that trap. Uh, I think if I was Trump, I might run for office in November uh, for the Congress uh, or for the Senate maybe for the Congress, maybe try and become the speaker, might provide some kind of uh, legal diplomatic protection for him. Uh, but uh, I, I do think that the Democrats, are their goose is cooked in November and that all hell will break loose on impeachment and, and investigation and so on. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander if you can raid Donald Trump's house with the FBI, you can order the FBI to raid Hunter Biden's house and Joe Biden's house and rifle through Joe Biden's underwear. Oh wait, you definitely don't want to rifle through Joe Biden's underwear. Ask the Pope if you don't believe me. Uh, HB gives 10 Canadian dollars. Me and my mother watch you every Sunday. It's our ritual. Thank you and God bless you and your mother. Kamran Jawait gives two pounds. Jason Stewart gives £8.99. Dear George, Liz Truss looks set to win the Tory party leadership contest. How is this possible? Thanks for moats. I haven't missed a single show. Thank you for that, Jason. Gatry is still working on the merchandise, but will not really be able to make it work until we get back to Blighty uh, next weekend. Uh, so stand by for that. Everyone in the world will be able to wear uh, merchandise, a hat, a sweatshirt, whatever, saying that they are a graduate of the Open University of the Airwaves, the moats. Thanks for that. Super Chats continue. Diego Rodriguez gives £2. Eric Suarez gives $2. Buy a drink, George. I don't drink, Eric, but I will use your $2 wisely. Christopher Debbie gives $1. Alan Everest, $10. Creds AB, £1. Ganesh Moragan, 39.99 Saudi Real, second week in a row. Thank you, my dear friends in Saudi Arabia. Balthazar Rodelaga gives $1.99. Ray C gives $2 and says hello from Iowa. And Daniel gives £2. JJ, £1.79. Celtic back on top and Moats, it's a good day. 5 0. Hail, hail. Mumar. 550 gives $19.99. Thank you very much for that. Miska Meetening gives five euros and says, Good work. Keep up the hard work and the good fight. Thank you, Miska, for that kind donation. Daniel Hamilton, two pounds. Ben Stevenson uh, gives five pounds. Thank you, Ben. Let's go to Adelaide and talk with Bruce. Well, it's very early in the morning, I think, Bruce. Go ahead. Yes, uh, good morning. Oh, good afternoon, George. Um, I was just ringing back your last call last Sunday with a gentleman called Raymond in relation to the... Um, uh, yes, Raymond in Swansea. I recall him well. That's right. And he indicated that roughly 3% of the population of Taiwan were all against uh, being part of the Chinese mainland. Hi there, Bruce. 
Oh dear, Bruce phone back. I do want to hear that. Phil lost a fee, five pounds donation. Since the UK government won't donate some of my income tax to moats, I'm donating directly. Thank you, Phil, for that. So Tangy gives two pounds. You and Corbyn give me hope. Thank you very much for that, So Tangy. Have we got Bruce back on the line from Adelaide? I'd love to. Paul Rauf gives £1.79. Thank you very much indeed for that, Paul. Uh, while we're waiting on uh, Bruce in Adelaide, let me read some messages. Uh, Ricks195 says, Tulsi Gabbard should have been president for America, not Biden. That's a good shout. And Forrest1989 says, You should mention that Martin Jay is a leading journalist who won the UN's prestigious Elizabeth Neufel Memorial Prize in New York in 2016. I didn't know that, but I'm happy to mention it. Tanya Kim says, Taiwan's new leader has stopped all education in Chinese only. Taiwanese can be used, and she's taken Chinese history out of the school curriculum and added Japanese instead. How's that for irony? Japan, of course, the brutal occupier of what is now Taiwan. Uh, and Trevelyan Gale, what a great name, says the missing Ukrainian arms are going to be out of sight, out of the news in sub-Saharan Africa. King Cerses gives £8.99 and adds that he's a regular Patreon supporter of mine. But here's a little more. Your Majesty, King Cerses, thank you very much and I will indeed continue the fight. Uh, Anna Lip, her reports from Donbass helped many understand the origins of the conflict, has reported that her mother's bank account has been seized back in Germany just as hers was. The Germans are performing a despicable role in all of this. Ashar Idris says Afghanistan is not a desert country. In fact, they have more snow in winter than London. Their mountain region is beautiful. Their food looks really good. Ashar, I've been in Afghanistan many times and I know very much about its food and its topography. But thanks for bringing others up to date. Martin Birchall says, do you have any plans to interview the film star William Shatner about being on Star Trek and starring on TJ Hooker? and being a film producer and film director and being the oldest man in space. I didn't have any plans to do that, Martin, as it happens, but I do now. Okay, let's go to line two. Sean in East Ardsley, which is uh, not as far away as Adelaide, but far. Go ahead, Sean. Hi there, George. It's great to speak to you again. Hope you're keeping well. And you. All good. Yeah. Thank you very much good. Uh, it's a bit off point, but I'd just like to comment on Salman Rushdie. Um, has he or any of his supporters now speaking the bile on the, um, on the media? Um, has any of them condemned Western government for, for taking off RT News, considering the so keen on democracy? Well, that is a very like, good point, but be, yeah, go on, go on, finish your point. Uh, I'd also like to say Salman Rushdie himself were begged by the British government back in 1988 not to publish the uh, book Satanic Verses um, at the time uh, due to a number of hostages that were being held 
there by certain militia groups in Lebanon. Um, he actually put their lives at risk, and I'm talking about the likes of Terry Wade, John McCarthy, and the Irishman Brendan, uh, I think he was called Brendan Keenan. Their lives were in great danger if uh, Russia Brian, published I think it was that Brian book. Keenan, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, despite uh, pleas by the British government, Rushdie went ahead and just published that book. He couldn't give a damn about the people that he was putting at risk. Uh, he then had the audacity to start uh, crying and decrying um, Ayatollah Khomeini when he issued a fatwa on him. Um, it strikes me as complete and utter hypocrisy to listen to these people uh, condemning Russia when you have the likes of Salman Rushdie carrying out and doing exactly what he is doing and what he has done. Well, look, thanks, um, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Sean, to address this question. Uh, first of all, I utterly condemn uh, the multiple stabbing of a 75-year-old defenseless man by a 24-year-old man with a knife uh, in the incident that you are talking about. I absolutely condemn it. It's a thoroughly immoral, in fact, cowardly act uh, against a defenseless man of that age. I want to put that to bed right up top. I'm yeah, wondering I would agree why, with you there, George. Uh, Rushdie, yeah, I'm wondering why Rushdie was unprotected. Even I'm protected when I'm sitting on the page, and I ain't no uh, Salman Rushdie. When I'm on stage, as I will be uh, on the 7th of November in the Garrick Theatre in Stockport, not that far from you, hope you'll come, uh, I'll be protected by my friends, and uh, Rushdie can well afford to pay for security, and indeed formerly had a great deal of security paid for by us, the British uh, taxpayer, and quite properly, let me tell you about an incident that occurred uh, in a radio station in Seattle, in Washington State, where I was in what turned out to be quite an epic radio, radio encounter with a DJ uh, called uh, Medvedev, who was the resident shock jock of that radio station. And, I was uh, in the ring with Medvedev in, uh, in that radio station and into the green room coming up next was Salman Rushdie accompanied by two security men paid for by Britain who had gone all the way uh, to the west coast of America to protect him. And again I say quite rightly so. But he made the mistake, Rushdie, of beginning to diss me, slander me, insult me to his two minders in the green room, not knowing that sitting in the very same green room with them was my oldest friend, editor of this very show, Mr. Ron Mackay, who is, how shall I put it, uh, not a shrinking violet. And Ron reared up, rose, and confronted Salman Rushdie for his, uh, his slander of me in a green room in Seattle, causing the two British security men, G-men, to fumble for their pieces, if you get my drift. Uh, Ron was unarmed, of course, but he, he might have used his teeth to uh, take a lump out of Salman Rushdie way back 
then. That was about 15 years ago. I don't know when Rushdie ceased to have uh, security. It was exceedingly unwise to be sitting on a stage without protection and exceedingly unwise to have a 24-year-old Shiite Muslim from Lebanon in the small audience and able to saunter onto the stage and lay about uh, Rushdie. I'm glad that he uh, survived the assault. I'm sorry for the blood that he shed and the pain that he was caused. But I think the best point you made, Sean, was the first one. All those now on social media waving the flag and carrying the torch of freedom of speech include the very same people who cheered every act of censorship, including the labeling falsely of people like me and the closing down of alternative channels of information. Hypocrites, them? Ah, here's Josh in London. Let's hear from him. Josh, go ahead. Happy birthday for two days' time, George. Thank you for that, Josh. Yeah, I was just going to say, George, uh, because I, I was kind of in a quandary about, you know, the, the concept of white privilege that the liberal elites have kind of foregrounded a little more lately. Now, I accept, I accept and, you know, I recognise the fact that, like, you know, Western colonialism is the classic paradigm of that, that concept, you know, of, you know, Europeans enslaving, you know, people who are non-white Caucasian in most cases. And I, and I, of course, you know, needless to say, I deplore that. But at the same time, and quite ambivalently, you know, and I think I did touch on this with you some, a, few, a couple of years ago, you know, it didn't, white privilege did not save the Russians or Ukrainians or millions of others from, from the slaughterhouse. And it would be very repugnant and reprehensible of us to say that they were privileged when clearly their status as predominantly white Caucasians didn't save them from, you know, mass murder. Do you see my, the bind I'm in, George? It's, I recognise both sides of it, but it, it's, it, do you see the, the conflict I'm in or not? About, I do. I absolutely concept. do. Alas, uh, time is against me giving your question the answer that it deserves. Uh, but uh, all I can say is, as someone who grew up with my arse hanging out my trousers, with holes in my shoes and frequently having my electricity uh, cut off and shivering in a freezing cold council house, I never felt much white privilege in my upbringing. And my father, who left school at the age of 14, never experienced much of it either, nor my mother or their parents. And so uh, white privilege is a relative thing. It's absolutely the case. Uh, that for the last 300 years, more than 90% of all the massacres and genocides that have taken place in the world have been perpetrated by white, uh, mainly Northwest European people, although, of course, Spain, Portugal uh, played their role in empire also. That's true. But many of their victims were also white, the six million Jews, uh, who were massacred in the Holocaust were white people. Uh, the uh, 26 million uh, Russians and others in the former Soviet Union who 
perished in the Second World War were also white. But at the same time, we should never forget in the immortal words of the great philosopher Bob Marley, pirates they did rob I, sold I to the uh, pirate ships, they chained me into the hold of these ships and they dragged me through the middle passage and they put me to work like a beast in the fields of America and the Caribbean and that scar of slavery has not healed yet. I'm reading Mike Marcus's epic story of Muhammad Ali and the 1960s right now. I'm going to talk about it next week because I don't have time to do it this week. So I'll tell you what, Josh, we'll return to that very series of points. Let's hear from Bruce in Adelaide that we lost earlier. Bruce, welcome. Yes, hi, George. Uh, I don't know how far yes, we got. Yes, go ahead. But, uh, but I was just talking... Start again, start again, Bruce. Yes, okay, I was just referring to your last call last Sunday from Raymond in relation to the, uh, um, the people in Taiwan in relation to joining the mainland of China. And he indicated only 3% of the people were actually for it. There's a, another television uh, uh, YouTube show, or they're on Rumble mainly, I believe, uh, the Geopolitics in Conflict. And one of those gentlemen is also, or uh, was a member of the Pentagon at one stage, but their uh, situation there was that 10% of the people in Taiwan hold uh, dual passports for or citizenship between China and Taiwan, and 60% of the trade in Taiwan is either situated on the mainland of um, China or with the mainland of China, and that 55% of the people in Taiwan are all for the reunification of Taiwan into China. Now, the majority of those people are the older people or more established people and the 40, other 45% is money, the younger generation. And the ploy in relation to making Taiwan an independent country is money supported from the United States and also is a political ploy in gaining votes in relation to the, their next election. Um, Absolutely, absolutely sound, Bruce. Uh, the there are uh, there are actually millions of journeys across the Straits of Taiwan uh, by people from Taiwan to China and back again every year. Before COVID uh, made that uh, very difficult, the uh, abundance, the clear majority of Taiwan's trade is with the People's Republic of China. There are hundreds of thousands of Taiwanese living and working in the southeastern uh, coastline of the People's Republic of China. There was growing amity and prosperity between Taiwan and China. The United States was determined to disrupt and destroy it, and that for obvious, obvious reasons. That has to be the last call, I'm afraid. The super chats have been 
so super uh, this evening. I apologize. I promise you I'll read every one of them, even if I didn't get the chance to read yours out. NP gives $5. Greetings, George. I appreciate your brilliance and passion for truth. Cheers from America. Thank you very much indeed for that. A big thanks to my friends down under who get up so early, like Bruce, to watch the show. My greetings and uh, my salutations to the great people of America. Nothing that I have said tonight uh, in, in implies any enmity uh, towards you and the great people of your country. Kenneth Pola gives one American dollars. Open your eyes, 45 gives five American dollars. And can you discuss the escalating issue, he says, as it relates to the economic crisis worldwide. I'm also a Patreon subscriber. Thanks to all my Patreon subscribers. Some new material coming your way when I get back to life. See you next Sunday, 7 p.m., God willing, for the mother of all talk shows. 